Well, good morning, church. Those who are live in the building and those who are alive joining us online. It's good to, uh, it's good to have you all here together. What a great ending to the story of the day. The whole world is going after him. I mean, here we are, 20 centuries, more than 20 centuries later, and we're still going after him, still trying to understand the significance and the power of this man and of that event. Well, let me start with a, an equally memorable event, at least for us in, in our home. When it was time for us to take our first child home, uh, this little girl here, uh, we put her in a car seat in the back of the car. She was so small that we had to wedge in rolled up blankets and towels. And I was afraid that she would just fall down. The, the, the child's seat, even though it was an infant seat, still felt way too big. And she looked so fragile that, no kidding, this doesn't happen often, but I drove home along Lakeshore Boulevard, and I think I didn't do more than 40 kilometers the whole way home. (laughs) That first day, when you have your kid in your car with you, that's a scary day. Do you want to know what the next scary day is when you have your kid in the car with you? It's when you pass over the keys, isn't it? They turn 16, now you're handing over the keys. Now they're moving from the passenger seat into the driver's seat. That's a scary moment. I mean, there was a moment when one of our kids, who didn't have her learner's permit yet, but somebody in her family, one of the parents, told her it was okay to drive along these cottage roads to a rented cottage, and and nobody would find out. Rule breakers, you know, in the root household. There they were. It's a big moment, isn't it? in somebody's life when you hand them the keys. It's a big moment when you finally get behind the steering wheel. I mean, up until now, I'd done lots of the driving. Karina had done lots of the driving. We chose the destination. We chose the route. We chose the speed. And you're in the drive-along seat. But now we're going to change seats. Now you're going to drive, and I have to trust you. Because it's all about control, isn't it? Whoever is in the driver's seat is in control. Now, there are four drivers in my family. There's about to be five. Josh, do you want to come get the keys? I mean, this is, this is your month. What that, what that means, though, is that whenever I'm driving, there's always lots of other voices who think that they ought to be in control right? Why are you going this way, dad? This is the long way. You're going too fast, dad. You're going to miss the exit, dad. And something inside is just repeating that, uh, that sort of inner monologue. Hey, this is my car. Hey, these are my keys. We're going to go my way. But we're at that exciting phase in life where everybody in the car actually wants to be in the driver's seat. Now, here's why I bring it up. This week, This week, we remember Palm Sunday. This is the day that that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. Now, he comes into town. Does anybody remember his method of transportation? A donkey. I mean, it doesn't feel that uh, ostentatious, does it? It's kind of like arriving in a pinto. But that was his arrival. And as he came into town, everybody was cheering for him. But they all had an agenda. They all had their own idea underneath the Hosanna. Jesus, come and take care of me. Jesus, come and heal me. Jesus, come deliver me. 
Come on in and overthrow the Romans. Come on in and take back the temple, Jesus. Come on in, get rid of all the foreigners. Come on in, rearrange the circumstances of our lives so that they turn out just the way that we want to be. We all shout Hosanna. But really, what we're shouting for, if we're honest, is God doing what we want him to do. It's our way of saying, Jesus, we're glad to have you in the car. Just remember, it's our car. These are our keys. And we're going our own way. But, but you're sure welcome to ride along with us. And a lot of people, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of people find it really handy to have Jesus in the car as long as he's in one of the ride-along seats. Because something may come up and, and it's handy to have a Messiah with you when things go wrong. Jesus, I've run into some health problems. I could use some help. Jesus, there's this thing going on at work and I'd like it to turn out a little differently than the way it's looking right now. Jesus, I'm feeling really anxious today and I sure would, sure would appreciate an extra helping of your peace. Or Jesus, today I find myself just feeling really sad, but I sure could use a big helping of that hope that we talked about for so many weeks at church. Or even, Jesus, I... I know one day I'll be facing death, but I'd like to make sure that that's not the end. Um, my golden ticket, right? It's stamped. My eternity pass, that's sure. Um, and all of those, I mean, all of those are, are genuine requests, and all of them are important, and all of them are welcomed. Bring your requests before the Lord, the Bible says. But sometimes it's done from the, from the vantage point of, of us still wanting to remain in the driver's seat. Jesus, I'm not so sure that I actually want you driving. I just would like to have you along for the ride. Uh, Jesus, I, I'm not sure I'm willing to say that I want you in charge of my life, but I'd like you along with me when things go bad. Because if he's driving, that means I'm, I'm not in charge anymore. I'm I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. And if I put him in control of it, it's not just a matter of giving a little bit of money now and then when I'm feeling generous. It's more about him coming right into my life. And now it's not my wallet. Now it's his wallet. Boy, that's uncomfortable. And if Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered urge and ambition because it's his agenda. It's his life. He's driving. It means I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. And I don't just get to to gossip or flatter or cajole or deceive or rage or intimidate, manipulate, exaggerate, whatever it is. If I get out of the driver's seat and hand the keys over to him, it means that, that I am still fully engaged but I'm no longer fully in charge. And that's the strange dynamic of surrender. And surrender is really what we're going to talk about today. In fact, surrender can mean I'm more alive than I've ever been before, but it's not entirely my life anymore. It's him. It's him in me. So here's the question on this lovely Palm Sunday as it's pouring rain outside. When When King Jesus gets celebrated again, 
when, when the palm branches are, if not waved, at least recognized in the sanctuary. Here's the question for the day. Who's driving your life? Who's in the driver's seat? Have you ever surrendered it fully? Is Jesus just in the car? Is it life as usual with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top? Or have you been clear about who's really in charge? I mean, be honest. Is he just doing a ride along with you? Or is he driving? I mean, have you ever said from the most honest place in your soul, all right, Lord, I'm giving it fully over to you. I mean, Jesus is clear about this. There is no way for a human being to come fully to God that does not involve surrender. We find statements like this in Jesus' teaching over and over again. Like this one from Matthew, Matthew 10, 39. Jesus says, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Or he puts it another way. This is in the Gospel of John in chapter 12, verse 24. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's the dying to an old way of living that becomes the gateway to a new way of life. He puts it this way in Matthew 16, verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I mean, we know those words, but they're hard words. Let me just stop for a second and and say something, because the word surrender for us usually, I think, involves uh, some connotation of losing, doesn't it? You go to battle, you can't win, so you surrender. I give up. I mean, it, it feels like it's over and you came out on the losing side. Can I just say that surrender here is not the same as giving up? It's not the same as being passive? The part of God's will for each of your lives is that you be active, that you make choices, that you be creative, that you initiate, that you take responsibility. It's not... It's not being passive, and it doesn't mean being a doormat, which is the other fear about surrender, that somehow you surrender and then you just get trampled on. It doesn't mean that you allow people to walk all over you. It doesn't mean that you accept, accept circumstances kind of fatalistically. In fact, if you surrender your life, if you become a wholly devoted follower of Jesus, it will require a kind of courage in fighting the status quo that goes beyond what happens if you just stay the course doesn't mean that you cease to use your mind or ask questions or think critically. It's not a crutch for weak people who can't handle life. Instead, here's the definition I want to put in front of you. Surrender. Surrender is the glad and voluntary acknowledgement that there is a God and it's not me. And that his purposes are wiser than my purposes and that his desires are better than my desires. Jesus, Jesus didn't come to arrange the outside circumstances of my life the way I want them to be. He came to 
rearrange the inside of my life the way that God wants it to be. And in surrender, I'm allowing God to come in and do that. It's kind of like a Copernican revolution of the soul. Surrender is like a Copernican revolution of the soul. You remember Copernicus said that we are no longer the center of the universe. I am no longer the center of the universe. I make room for God to come in. I yield. I'll let go. God, I'll do what you say, whatever it is. I'll obey your word. I'm not driving anymore. So that's what we're talking about today on Palm Sunday. And I I know this is a hard subject. And maybe it doesn't feel like it has that air of celebration you'd normally expect for Palm Sunday. We expect the five-year-olds singing joyfully and waving their palms. And we all go, ah, and I miss that. Don't you miss that? We miss that. But, But there is underneath the story of Palm Sunday... This constant drive towards making a choice, towards making a decision. And it's that theme that I want to reflect on with you today. And in our culture, when the great themes of faith get discussed, and it's increasingly rare, but when they do get discussed, there are some messages from the Bible that get named in any venue, that get lifted up in any medium, that popular culture loves hearing. No matter who you are, no matter how much you mess up, God still loves you. Everybody likes that message. They'll download that message. I love preaching that message. It's true. Or this one, you get busy, you're exhausted, you're overworked, life is hard, it feels like it's moving at such a pace, you need rest. And God offers you refreshment, rest for the soul. Everybody likes that message. I love preaching that message, and it's true. How about this one? You need to surrender. You're sinful and stubborn and stiff-necked, It's not the whole truth about you, but it is a truth about you. How do you like that message? You're self-centered and self-promoting, often in secret ways, and your desires will often be self-serving, and even your ability to perceive your own faults, your own brokenness is distorted because you're blinded by self-deception. How do you like that message? You need to bend the knee. You need to submit your life. You need to confess your sin. You need to surrender to God. Is everybody excited about that message? Now let's just go back to the love and rest. I'll tell you one person who really, really needs to hear the message. It's me. I'll give you a personal example. I grew up with this great drive to succeed and to lead. Uh, that word for me, to, to lead, it just had such resonance in it. I think it deceived me into wanting to believe that I was more capable and more popular and more confident than I actually was. And so I did things. I mean, I, I ran for student union president. I ran for the university senate. I ran for president of the CBOQ and the, The truth about me was that I was probably more introverted and bookish and insecure than I wanted to admit and that I wanted anybody else to see. But as I was growing up, I 
I was trying so hard to be somebody that I wasn't, and trying so hard to grab onto something that I couldn't. And, and there's this part of me, defensive and hidden and driven, and, and it was just inauthentic in ways that I didn't even know. And then about seven years ago, um, a few of you might remember this season in my life, about seven years ago, I went through six months of just internal emptiness and pain and depression like nothing I'd experienced before. Culminated in a moment I would never forget when I, I went before the elders of this church, just some gifted, wonderful men, and said, I think I'm done. I mean, I just, I don't think there's anything left in me. And they listened as this volcano of emotions came out, and my wife listened, and a precious brother in the faith listened, as out of me came not just a tear or two, but, but sobs. I'd been going through the emotions, and I knew it. And I wasn't coping, and the ways I was using to cope were completely dysfunctional. I was so broken that I thought I was going to die. And all I knew is that I had been holding on to something that was messing my life. And, and as a consequence, there was really no life in it. There was no joy in it. And eventually, I, I came to say, God, I, I need to let go of this, this, this need. And this need to be this kind of person. I don't know what's left when I let it go. And I don't know who I'm going to be and... And I don't know what the future is going to hold, but, but I guess for now I'm, I'm just going to trust you in this and I'll do the best I can with whatever is left and then I'll let it go. Because God, in this area of my life that is so hard for me, I, I feel like it's killing me. But I'm going to let you drive. I'm going to let you drive. It's kind of strange to look back for me because that was, it was seven years ago. And to see what I was dying to, I mean, it was nothing. It was, it was a false self. It, was, it felt so important to me, but it felt like I couldn't give it up. But it was all this illusion of misplaced pride and ego and junk and just terrible coping strategies. And of course, I still have lots of surrendering to do every day. But one of the things that I'm learning on the other side of that, on the other side of that death, is that there is freedom and there is life. And one of the many ironies is that I'm now in a position where leadership is a fair amount of what I do every day. But I find myself energized by it, not depleted by it. Praying and depending on God and learning in ways that I never did before. There's still weight attached to it. But, but there's not this need attached to it. I'm not on the line with it. There's a freedom that was never there before. I guess what I'm trying to suggest, and if you have it in your notes, you'll see this sentence in there, that we cannot will our way to victory. That we must surrender that. I mean, this gets really deep into the issue of surrender. I can't surrender to God unless I believe that He really has my best interests at heart. I can't do it otherwise. 
Jesus has an awful lot to say about dying to self, but it's always about the death to a lesser self, to a false self, so that you can be raised to a better and a nobler self, to a fuller life. It's always death to to desires and behaviors that would end up killing me anyway, so that I can come alive and thrive as the kind of person that God wants me to be. Life just works better when Jesus is driving. Have you found that? It just works better. Even though the circumstances can be horrible still, life just works better. Here's why. Because you, you can receive a power through surrender that you can't obtain any other way. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. But you can receive a freedom through submission that you will otherwise never know. Let me give you another example. I'm sure lots of you are familiar and we've spoken about it in the past. But, but you've heard about the 12 steps of AA, of Alcoholics Anonymous. The 12 steps that lay out a way of life that is the greatest single vehicle to freedom for addicts. For those enslaved to habit and desire. It's the greatest vehicle that the world has ever known. AA is for people who found it impossible to stop. And we've applied it to all kinds of things. To gambling and narcotics and and, and other addictions. Pornography and reckless behavior. But... But what's fascinating to me is I read through some of the texts of AA. In which of the 12 steps do you think it says, now I will try really hard to stop drinking? None of them. None of them say that. None of them say anything close. Decide that you're not going to drink anymore. The most powerful tool against one of the most powerful addictions in the world, never ask people just to decide to stop doing what they're doing. Doesn't ask them just to mobilize their will. Why? Because they have tried that before. And it's failed so many times. Instead, they are asked to surrender their will. Step one. Step one, we realize that we are powerless That our lives were unmanageable. When I'm driving, I'm just prone to messing it up and I'm headed for a crash. Step two, I came to believe that there is a power greater than myself that can restore me. And step three, our step today, this is a killer, but when you take it, we make the decision to turn over our will and our life into the care of God And that is the first step to healing and recovery. Have you done that? Have you done that? I mean, it's a strange thing. To overcome the problem, the junk, whatever it is, to overcome it strictly by sheer force of will, usually is going to be a road to defeat. Surrender your will as scary as it is. And then another kind of life becomes possible. It's not defeat. It's not loss. It turns out to be the only way to win. The only way to victory. Not just with alcohol or addictions or bad habits, but with brokenness, with sin in general. I want to take this just one level deeper for a second. Why is it you think that your will 
fails. We place great confidence in our will, don't we? We tell people, you can be anything you want to be. Uh, we, we pride ourselves on that great inner drive. Shouldn't the will be the most dependable of instruments? Now, here's the simple reason, I think. It doesn't sound terribly scientific, so I apologize to the, the medical personnel in the house. I see you all here. It's good to have you here. We're so grateful for you. Uh, your will fails because your mind can be crazy. I mean, you could just be downright crazy and it will mess you up. Let me quote from, this is called the Blue Book. The Blue Book is the guidebook for AA. It's a profound reflection on the way that the mind works and why it is we need a power greater, greater than ourselves. So when it comes to drinking, here's what the Blue Book says. We ought to ask the question, why is it that I can't stop? And I say, I feel at certain moments of my life, never again. I know that's the way to death. And I say it out loud, never again. But then I do it again. And why do I do it again when it violates everything I think and believe and value? And this is, this is what he writes. Because we are unable at certain times to bring back into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of all the suffering and humiliation of even one night ago. It's crazy. I mean, our minds can just be crazy. And again, this could be around drinking or any violation of the rules, but here's how, here's how that writer concludes. The certain consequences that follow taking a drink don't crowd into the mind to deter us the way they ought. And if these thoughts do occur, they're just kind of hazy and they're readily replaced by those old threadbare ideas that this time we can handle it ourselves. That's the way that temptation always works. It's a form of temporary insanity. The only way to be free of it is to hand over the keys. And I don't want to do it, and neither do you, but there is no other way. Of course, the good news about surrender is that if you do it one time, you never have to do it again, right? <laughs> or maybe not. Here's how Jesus put it. This is Matthew 16. Verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow me. And the key word in that little sentence is the word daily. Today we're at church. Today we love God. Today we want to follow God. But then tomorrow it's Monday. And then it's Tuesday. And then Wednesday. And and Paul puts it like this from Romans 12, verse 1. He says, you need to offer your old body as a living sacrifice. That idea is that it's a continuous offering up of who we are. It's, it's a continuous act of surrender. I mean, usually for us, the idea of sacrifice involves taking an animal, an animal that is killed and then placed on an altar and later consumed but let's say you take a creature that's still alive and you put it on the altar and you say, Let, just stay there for a minute and you walk away. 
what's going to happen? They're going to jump down off the altar and go their own way. Paul's saying, no, of your own volition, you need to stay there. You need to surrender day by day, moment by moment. It's going to scare you, but it's the only way to life. And if it's a hot issue, one of those burning hot issues like jealousy or resentment, the hurt goes down deep. Once you've surrendered, it may only be a matter of minutes before revenge fantasies start coming back into your mind again and you need to surrender again. But maybe the next time you recognize the feelings a little bit sooner and you're able to hold them in check a little bit sooner. But every day, day by day, moment by moment, you surrender. You take up the cross daily. Oh yeah, I remember that, God. I need to surrender. I surrender. And again, we're not, we're not a doormat for doing it. This isn't a saccharine thing. It's, it takes more courage, I think, not less, to do this. And you know, too, that surrender is never just about an internal, internal event. Uh, it's not just about us feeling pious and devoted. Okay, I've surrendered to God. Usually it involves external actions, and usually those actions come at a cost, and often it's really costly. The behavior that follows surrender. But all the time, in our choices and in our actions, there's always that question. Who's driving? Who's driving? So just to make it clear, let me roll it out as we wrap things up for today. Really, there are only three ways to answer that question. Who's driving? You can, if you want, You can live with a heart that is rebellious and cold towards God. God, my car, my life, my keys, my way. Stay out. I don't want anything to do with you. And I will live the way that I want to live. And you just stay away. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to believe in you. And you can live that way if you choose. You can live with a rebellious heart if you choose. And you will reap the whirlwind. Probably a more live option for many folks, probably most of the folks who are watching today, is to live with kind of a divided heart. Jesus is in the car, but, but we're taking turns at the steering wheel. Uh, I'll keep this area, this pattern, this part of my life under my control. I'm going to hold on to this grudge. I'm going to continue to enjoy this forbidden pleasure. I'm going to continue to cultivate this bad habit, and I'll retain secrecy all around it. I know, God, that, that you ask for full surrender, but I'm not willing to trust you with these things yet. In fact, we're never that overt about it. We keep these things really hazy in our minds. But what God is trying to do, and what I hope he will do today, is to make them more sharp and clear. Who is driving in the different parts of your life? And you should know this. If you live with a divided heart, that's also kind of a miserable way to live. It blocks you from that that sense of ease and life, and freedom that comes only in a fully surrendered life. You keep Jesus out of the driver's seat. It gnaws at you, doesn't it? It kind of tears at you. So then the third option, the 
The only thing that really gives that settled sense of peace and that unshakable sense of, of life that all is well is, oddly enough, a surrendered heart. I'll turn my life, my will over to God. I know there's a cost, but I'm more than willing to bear it. You lose a life, but you gain a life. And the life that you gain is so much better than the life that you lose. It turns, turns out that nothing you lost was really worth keeping after all. None of it could ultimately be kept anyway. Paul said this in Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. For him, those weren't just words. That really happened. My false self, my self-centeredness, my hiddenness, my sin, all crucified. And God, with your help through Jesus, I'm going to die to that the best that I can. And it's no longer I that live anymore. That old false self no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. And this is so much better. So again, here's the question. Who's in the driver's seat? Have you fully surrendered your life to Jesus? And Jesus will be relentless about this. He was in his day. He is still. Remember that woman gets caught in adultery. says, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Will you surrender your sexuality to me? Your habits, your thoughts, your actions. If you need help with that, you need to bring that into the light. Bring it before God. Maybe you need to bring it before some other people as part of your surrender. And if you do that, whatever it takes, you surrender. There's healing. Lots of times it's around money, isn't it? A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus knows this is a place where he's stuck and he needs to surrender. Jesus says, I want you to surrender your wallet to me. And he says, no, I can't do that. Later, another wealthy man does. Zacchaeus does, and he volunteers, and it changes his life. Half of everything I own, he says, I'm going to give to the poor, and he seems thrilled to do it. I'm going to pay back everybody I cheated, and can you imagine the burden that gets lifted for him when he does that? Maybe it's not your sexuality or your wallet, but maybe it's in your relationships. Has anybody here ever been in a house where you felt controlled by someone else or you tried to control somebody else. Maybe you're sitting through this message saying, boy, I hope that other person is listening well to the message today. I'm going to order that CD and I'm going to give it to them. (laughs) No, I give up control. I mean, I give up trying to control that other person. I give up having to have it always my way. Or maybe it's a grudge or maybe it's an attitude or a habit or a job. But if you struggle with this, You need to surrender. Jesus will help. Remember this moment, and we're going to gather around this moment during the course of the week. Remember the whole reason that Jesus understands your struggle, the whole reason that he is empowered to respond in a a way that nobody else can. is because of that moment this week when he knelt in the garden. On your behalf and mine. The reason we have Easter next week comes down to this one man. Sweat on his brow. Despair in his heart. And yet warmed 
by the presence of God. He kneels in a garden and says, God, I don't want this. I don't want the cross. I don't want the weight. I don't want the burden. I don't want the shame or the pain or the death. I don't want it. But not my will, but yours be done. Father, you drive. I'll pay the cost. I surrender. Have you ever done that? This is your day. Maybe you've, you've yielded your life to God, but there's some area that you're still holding on to. Or maybe you've never really said to God, it's not just that I want to believe in you, but God, I surrender to you. I need to acknowledge you, Lord, not just as my Savior, but as my Master. Maybe you want to say to him, Lord, my time, my money, my will, my future, my desires, I hand them back to you. I surrender. I want you to be my leader. I want you to be my Lord. And maybe to the best of your awareness, you've never done that before. But today, Palm Sunday, God is speaking to you. A habit, an attitude, a grudge, maybe something around money or possessions. But in your spirit, you've been holding on to it. Would you surrender it now? Would you let it go? As a sign of your surrender, I'm going to invite you to do this, as we did last week. Just to place in the chat, if you're joining us online, the hashtag, I surrender all. Some of you have asked, well, what are these hashtags? They're a way of signaling to the whole world that this is the day you took your stand. Anytime anybody in any context searches that phrase under a hashtag, they'll find you. I surrender all. In that moment, in that posture of surrender, I'm going to invite you to pray. God, we want to be open to the movement of your spirit in these moments. We want to make them sacred moments where our encounter with you moves from the theoretical to the deeply personal. God, you're speaking in our lives. We want to come before you in the, in the best way that we can, in the greatest act of courage we can muster and say, God, whatever it is in our life that still has control of us, we hand it over to you. In this moment, I surrender. And from this moment onward, I want to live my life fully devoted to you and, and to your will. Not as an act of abandonment, but as an act of courage. In courage, I place my life in your hands. And I look forward to the opportunities that come to the abundant life that Jesus promised when we give it all over to him. So God, in this moment, to you, in Jesus' name, we surrender. Amen.